0: At Snarky Faith, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round
1: of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity in Christianity, you've come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world a better place in tangible ways. And if you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of
0: sarcasm
1: and also a bit of this, then welcome home. We're glad you're here. On today's show, we are going to continue talking through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Today, we're going to be covering issues like prayer, fasting, almsgiving, you know, the kind of stuff you want to be thinking about on a Friday night. But yes. We're going to be talking about important practices and why they are important and why they may not exactly be what you think they are. But before we descend into the snark, just a reminder that this broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at www.snarkyfaith.com or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube we're there, we're everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. And if you want to interact more with the show, we have a Snarky, F- Snarky Faith page over on Facebook. You can drop me a line at stuart at snarkyfaith.com. And if you want to leave a message, that'll probably end up on the air. You can record it on our website, snarkyfaith.com. Well, I hope everyone is surviving this week. This is the week of Thanksgiving in America. That's right. It's a time where Americans come together in, 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 for the love of family and community and in the spirit of gratitude. We stuff our faces and then then we go shopping and buy a bunch of stuff that we don't need on Black Friday, which is actually on Thursday now. So it's it's a very complicated time if you're an American. If you're not, hope everyone's doing well uh and uh if you are i really hope you survive this week. Now now beginning the show knowing this is thanksgiving week i wanted to be able to give you something that you could take with you as you are potentially going to be facing awkward conversations, some political, some just awkward because we have weird family members, those kind of conversations. So so if you are finding yourself needing some space Uh, We all have those people that tend to corner us and then never let go uh, the talking and talking and talking. And you can only drink so much in a short period of time without passing out or throwing up. So you have to have some other way to be able to cope with it. Well, this, this year, uh, I think I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring this uh, courtesy of the Christian crazy. Now, for those that listen to the show, the Christian crazy is a segment that we do where we kind of roast the worst the best of the worst of Christianity of the week. Now this one would, would normally fit into the category of being the Christian crazy, but, but Bishop Larry Gators has some deep thoughts here. And so when I was listening to this for the Christian crazy section, I was going, wow, like this guy, he's really putting together a heavy word salad here. I don't really know what he's getting at. I'm not even sure what he means. But if you can memorize this, if you can kind of walk through this on your own, I guarantee you if somebody sits down next to you and starts talking your ear off, if you launch into one of Bishop Larry Gator's deep thoughts tirades, I think you're going to find yourself some peace and quiet. And it kind of goes something like this. So pencils and papers, boys and girls, take notes.
0: This is everything. The past 6,000 years, beloved, of our earth's recreation since genesis 1 and 3 its entire history our entire historical pattern has been manipulated by manipulators here's where it gets good whose sole intent is to manipulate manipulation as being manipulated. That is a ping pong
1: match that goes back and forth and then somehow spirals into absolutely nothingness. But seriously, I think you could use it. I think you can learn that because anytime, first of all, a couple notes I took, okay? Dramatic pauses always great. They always make you seem even more crazy like, like you're sitting there listening and going like I know nothing is good is going to come from this but I kind of want to hear what's going to happen but I know it's bad for me. So so so. Couple of notes. Yes. Dramatic pauses. Yes. Also just start randomly calling people beloved. I think that that alone. That alone. Someone comes over walking up to you to have some small talk and like hello beloved. I, I think Your problem is solved from that one, too. Dramatic pauses, and then just the manipulators that become the manipulators and that manipulate more and manipulate... Hey, folks, this is just an entire manipulation sandwich, and it sounds delicious. And nobody does word salad like the bishop, so remember, remember to take something with you on Thanksgiving. It's only polite, and you never want to show up empty-handed. And if you're looking to excel at small talk. You know, one thing I would recommend for you to do is also kind of, you know, get involved with the current events of the day. You know, try to find some interesting news articles. Hey, you know what I'm going to do? I will do something for you right now. I'll do it just for you because I'm just that kind of guy. So, you know what? I should do this. Well, let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and hop into In The News, where we talk about what's going on in the news. In The News! (laughs) Our first news story is frustrating for me it's kind of one of those tell me you don't understand the eucharist without saying you don't understand the eucharist yes this article by peter webber uh from this from the week is called is entitled u.s catholic bishops approved document on the eucharist that avoids confrontation with biden and Pope Francis, yes, I'll directly quote this article here. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops voted 22 to 8 on Wednesday to approve a document on Catholics and the Eucharist, the center, central rite of Catholic religious observance. Three bishops abstained. Ooh, scandalous. Uh, the 30-page document titled The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church is the fruit of a contentious year-long debate on whether to deny communion to politicians who support abortion rights, sparked by the election of President Biden, our second Catholic president. Okay, so what's happening here is this. Uh, Protestant world, we're talking communion. Catholic liturgical world, we're talking Eucharist. Yes, we're talking about the bread, the wine, the, the open table of Christ, the, the call towards unity between God and me. It is is an essential practice within Christianity. It is something that is beautiful, and damn it, if the Catholic Church didn't just go ahead and make it really ugly by by making it very exclusive and political. Now, I know they're trying to dodge this uh, by, by really massaging this through in a way that kind of says something but says nothing at the same time, but the biggest thing that just gets me is the fact of why are we trying to legislate who who can partake who can partake in communion, who can partake in that that which Christ commanded us to do now, I know your answer to that is but the church likes excluding people, the church likes saying who can't do stuff who who's good who's bad what happens here but but the Eucharist, the Eucharist is supposed to be something beautiful. It is supposed to be something that is, is a beautiful symbol of God reaching out to us and continuing to like reestablish that union between us and her. And and to make this a political thing, to make this about telling people that they cannot take it is kind of misses the entire point of it. But that's where the church is today. Now, our second article that we have here, Now, this comes from Politico magazine, uh, entitled, Why Republicans Can't Stop Talking About Masculinity. Now, this is a, this is a Q&A with historian Christian Cobes-Demez Now, if anyone knows who that is, if that's sounding a little bit like, hey, I've heard this before, I've heard this before. Yes, she was the one that wrote the book last year, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. It is a great read, and I highly, highly recommend it. It's a great look into how the the whole rise of the religious right and kind of where we got where we are today. So why do I bring up an article about an author who wrote a book that was out and popular like a year or so ago, right? Why are we talking about that currently now? Well, what the article is pulling out is is this whole evangelical push now that we're beginning to see in politics towards masculinity, right? After we saw the Kyle Rittenhouse debacle go down and now we've kind of seen him become this, this rallying cry for the right, for people to stand up and be a man right? Because that's what we have to do. We need to have a gun to be a man. I digress. Sorry. But what this article really is erupting from from that and pushing into the ideas that we now have North Carolina representative Madison Cawthorn that has been, uh, that was in a viral video last month telling mothers to raise their sons to be monsters. Uh, He's been constantly talking about how our culture is demasculating young men. Uh, We've also got Josh Hawley, that is on some sort of a porn tear that really just feels reminiscent from, like, like the two thousands and the nineties and the eighties. Yeah, we're we're bringing this thing back again too. And then we also have mm, frustratingly J.D. Vance, who is an Ohio Senate candidate and author, uh, talking about it in these terms. He said it like this: He said, "We leave our boys without fathers." We let the wolves set fire to their communities, he continued, and when human nature tells them to go and defend what no one else is defending, we bring the full weight of the state and the global monopolists against them. Again, wink, wink, to Kyle Rittenhouse there, yes, the Kyle was just trying to do what a man's gotta do. Because apparently that just means go shoot people because you're being a cosplay cowboy. Uh, I'm not really sure what that's about. No. So a lot of this is, so they're bringing this up because this is something that we're beginning to see ramping up again in politics, okay? And so in this, in this interview, I love, and I wanted to highlight just one portion that, uh, that Christian uh, Cobes-Demez says. And she explains this very, very succinctly. So I'm going to go ahead and quote her. Um, so she says, I'll start with Holly. So she's explaining... Uh, some of the background behind all of this craziness that's happening. So I'll start with Holly. Within conservative evangelical spaces, first of all, there's the idea that masculinity is a God-given thing. When Holly is talking about an attack on men and saying that the left is attacking manhood and that they hate this country and don't believe in gender, all of that sounds very familiar. In white evangelicalism, this has been a refrain for decades now. In evangelical spaces, Christian manhood has long been equated, particularly in conservative circles with a kind of rugged military quality. Since the 1960s, conservative evangelicals have elevated a more militant ideal of masculinity, one that is both provider and protector. They have argued that God has created man to fulfill these roles. He's filled men with testosterone to give them strength, and that testosterone makes them aggressive, and they need to channel that aggression for good. This is their God-given duty as men. And so when I heard Holly talk about courage and independence and assertiveness, that's very similar to how masculinity is discussed in evangelical spaces. Although often, rather than assertiveness, they substitute with aggressiveness. I loved her point there. She continues, this kind of reactionary masculinity that emerges in the 1960s, 1970s in conservative evangelical spaces and more broadly in American conservatism. And the context here is important. Coming out of the post-war era, there was a baby boom. The traditional family values were all the rage, at least amongst the white class, the white middle class. When you have this disruptive movement in the 1960s, uh, you have the civil rights movement, uh, which is particularly disruptive in the American South to the status quo. And you have the early feminist wave and second wave feminism in the 1960s, full swing in the 70s, and very importantly, the Vietnam War and anti-war movement. All of these things are seen to destabilize the social order, and conservatives are particularly concerned. And all, in all of these three cases, it's the assertion of the white patriarchal authority or power that can restore order. They believe that feminism is threatening to emasculate American men which was leaving the nation weak and unable to defend itself against communism. The anti-war movement, and all those hippies and men with long hair, make love, not war, was leaving the nation imperiled. The civil rights movement as well was seen as a threat. In the American South, particularly white families, the integration of schools was seen as a threat to white children. And against that backdrop, this kind of restoration of a rugged American manhood becomes not just popular but politicize in a very partisan way. And we've seen the rise of this, this culminating even more because we see Trump being the strong man, which is hilarious. I love this idea that he's a macho man and that his followers think he's, he's, (laughs) I'm just sorry. It's just so stupid. It's so stupid in concept. But, but, but we, we see this, we see this, we see this macho-ness trying to return to the scene. And it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad that at the core of all of this, that we read about these things, and we see that this is a big push from conservatism and evangelicalism, that somehow this is a product of the American church. Well done, American church. Well done. Now that I've made you all depressed and sad, we're gonna move into the Christian crazy of the week where we highlight the choicest cuts of Christian nuts, and, and this week in particular, it may just help you to become more desensitized towards any kind of crazy family conversations you may over here across the table. So here we go with the Christian crazy of the
0: week. If loving the Lord is wrong, I don't want to be right. Lord have mercy. The Lord is my shepherd. he knows what I want. Well, let's
1: descend into the best of the worst in hopes that it may prepare you a little bit for Thanksgiving, right? So, so... Needless to say, there's probably going to be conversations surrounding vaccines and mandates, right? Right? Okay, so we're going to cover this. We're going to cover the crazy in different ways on the spectrum. So we're going to be starting here talking about vaccine craziness. So best one to begin with is the man, the myth, the guy that's behind true news. So true. You only spell with T-R-U, no E. They're just that true. True news, Rick Wiles! Rick Wiles has got a little doom. He's got a little gloom. He does not like where this is going. He doesn't like where this vaccine thing is going. Oh, no, 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 no. And wait, just where is it going? Oh, Rick, tell us, where is it going? Where is it going, Rick?
2: What you have to do is end this madness because their madness will never end if we don't stand up to it. Ten years from now, they, they will still be imposing vaccines on people in order for you to breathe. Oh, you want you want to breathe? Oh, you're going to have to have another booster. I mean, they're, they're going to continue to restrict the rights of people until there is nothing left. Yes. And so you have to stop them. And you have to be prepared for the unthinkable to be implemented to stop them. We're, we're going into world war. And as... It's a world war against tyrants.
1: So to quote the great Ron Burgundy, that escalated quickly. I like how we went from we're going to have to have more boosters and maybe they're going to keep pushing vaccines on us, kind of like they do with children and smallpox and polio. Oh, no, they're going to keep off this whole idea. I know. I want measles back. Don't you? We all do, right? Smallpox. I miss it. I miss it so much polio my legs why do i even need them crazy but i like how he does like this whole step between it's getting extreme now world war three this is going to be the vaccine wars are coming the vaccine wars all right so first of all the vaccines are going to lead to wars we got that but secondarily we have to start to begin to realize how distinctively demonic these these things are! How how horrible it is, and 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 what they're doing to the children! And and damn it, this big ass bird that is going to screw up everything! What
2: the what is wrong with that damn bird? Let's hear from Mario Murillo. This is the most demonic thing I've seen in a long time. Uh, the indoctrination of children, giving an experimental thing to children, and. Without answering the question, see, to me, this is the worst form of bullying and peer pressure that you can possibly uh, use in society. When the men's gay chorus in San Francisco sang and said, we're going to go after your children, there was a massive backlash. And there's going to be to this Sesame Street and there's going to be a line drawn by parents and they're going to they're going to switch this off. And you're going to watch this this firestorm, because once you make it about the children, that's when all of the left, right, Republican, Democrat labels go out the window. If you come after my child, I am done with you. I'm finished with you. And that's what you're going to see is the end result of this attempt by Sesame Street to indoctrinate children and their parents, by the way. <laughs> I Wait, I
1: will give this to him. Nobody does stream of consciousness bullshit like Mario Murillo. That is fantastic. So we start about talking about don't, don't mess with the children. Don't mess with the children. And then we somehow like moved over to like the gay men's choir coming for kids. And then back to Big Bird, this whole thing. He 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 end caps the end of this, that this is all about Big Bird. This is Big Bird. Oh Mario, oh Mario. That was that was beautiful. And for you my dear listeners, I have a feeling some of you may end up hearing such amazing tales that move in and out of reality. I've got a few of those relatives. I'm pretty sure you do as well. All right, well we got two more crazies to go. So on your on your Thanksgiving dinner bingo card. Does anyone have Relative mentions Adolf Hitler. I mean, come on. You haven't had a good time until someone brings up Hitler. Anyone, anyone, anyone? Oh, you, you over there, Mark Taylor, firefighter prophet. (laughs) So let's go ahead and just get our dose of full on, full on crazy. And this is even beautiful because I love it in the Christian crazy when the crazies start to eat their own. Because Mark Taylor is talking here about. How he thinks some of these prophets out here are not doing god's work <gasps> you don't say really
0: when someone's operating in witchcraft the same spell mesmerizing spirit that was on adolf hitler yes it was mark yes it was, was on obama and it's on some of these charismatic leaders as well it's on some of these prophetic leaders as well it's a mesmerizing witchcraft spirit it is It is a spell that is cast upon the people to mesmerize them. Oh my, look what an anointed man or woman of God they are. Look look at the talent that this man or woman has. It's not about talent. It's about anointing from God himself, guys.
1: You know, is it me or does someone sound a little jealous, right? Does anyone have any prophet envy? (gasps) Anointing envy? (gasps) No! Yep, yep. But I love it. I love it. So they go demonic and they start trying to call out some people. But but for this to be officially crazy, we had to throw Obama in there, right? Like, oh, there's Hitler and there's and Obama. Oh, of course, of course, as as they put it. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You don't get demonic without Obama, right? <laughs> These guys are nuts. <laughs> lastly, lastly, I want to do this. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do gaslighting in three parts here. This is this is a beautiful little session here with 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 pastor and auctioneer, Greg Locke. Now, Greg is mad. Greg is mad about some stuff that's been going on in his church. Now, first of all, we're going to listen to this, and I want you to listen for a few things here. Uh, First of all, listen for gaslighting. Anything in gaslighting? Anything in gaslighting? And then I'm going to point out the rest as we go. So let's just go ahead and let's hop in here and see, see where he goes a little awry.
0: Every person in my life that I trust greatly has a good marriage. Did you hear me? Every one of them.
1: All right. Maybe we're okay here. Maybe good old Lockie, somehow, it's going to make a point. Don't worry, he's not. He won't fail us. Don't fail us, Craig. Don't
0: fail us be crazy. When I think of every drama-filled person that blew out of this church and blew me up on Facebook, their marriage is crap 100% of the time. Every person I trust has a marriage that works. It's not that it's perfect, but it works.
1: Okay, a couple things to unpack in the moment here beyond the fact that Greg Locke does not have an inside voice. There's some drama here. I'm I'm going to tell you there's a story that, that everybody knows what's going on in the situation. And I also just love pointing this out. This is during a Sunday morning sermon. This is, this is Sunday morning worship. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, wait. Something I also should point out here. Uh, something about the cot, pot calling the kettle black. Okay, yes. If memory serves me right. Oh, wait. Greg Locke is divorced. And, and during his divorce, uh, his wife accused him of abusing her. Physically, emotionally, mentally. And wait, Greg Locke also left his wife for his church secretary, if that reminds me, if that's how it went. Okay. I mean, literally, trusting people that have healthy, strong marriages and, you know, that somehow do as I say, but not as I do. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, Greg Locke is saying that he doesn't trust himself. <laughs>
0: He's a wounded little soul. He's a wounded little soul. Oh. Do you know why people cause drama in church? Because they're comfortable causing drama in their house. If you will disrespect your spouse, no wonder you will disrespect your pastor. If you will disrespect your wife, no wonder you can't stand your boss. If you are comfortable disrespecting your husband, you will be comfortable disrespecting the Holy Ghost. Wait, wait, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe Greg
1: actually figured it out. Maybe this is like a real cry for help. Greg's kind of like, well, you know, I haven't done any of these things, which means I'm, I don't respect the Holy Spirit. Uh, Yeah, I don't respect the Holy Spirit, which is why I do church in this way. I preach a misogynistic, a bigoted gospel, a... Whatever the heck I like to do in my Yosemite Sam kind of voice, kind of gospel pastor guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, Mmm, mmm, mm. Thoughts and prayers for Greg Locke. Lots of thoughts and prayers for Greg Locke. So as we exit the Christian crazy, just a shout out and thanks over on Twitter to Right Wing Watch, Friendly Atheist, and Christian Nightmares. Eh, you guys do a lot of the dirty work to find a lot of these dirty clips. So much appreciated. And as we're talking about Thanksgiving, I am grateful towards you. I have gratitude for your work. So hopping into our main conversation piece, what we have been wading through for the past several weeks, we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, the centerpiece to Jesus's ethics and rules for the kingdom of God, where what Christ is really trying to do is open the eyes of his followers, and take them through a system through which they are called to live, right? So we, let's see, the past two weeks we talked about things like adultery, murder, divorce, uh, about loving your enemies, um, about that so much of these things we talk about, anger and murder and all of this, it, it, it comes down to a heart issue. So it's something that's within us. So a lot of what Christ is breaking down, a lot of the laws that we talked about in the past are all come down to this one idea. Do you love your neighbor? Do you love your enemy? Are you a person that is bringing love onto this world? So up until this point, Christ has really been dealing with them, with the disciples, trying to get this idea of like, what's in your heart? Like what's in there? What, what is that? Because now we're going to move over as we went from Matthew 5 to Matthew 6, starting in Matthew 6. We are going to be talking about external practices, what they do, and how we walk them out. So um, what I'm going to do is I'll explain this to you as we're reading, but um, I'm going to break this down and I'm going to take it a little out of order in order for us to talk about this. So we're going to talk about uh, this in different segments. We're going to talk about giving to the needy, uh, almsgiving, giving to the poor. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about fasting, and then we're going to talk about prayer again, Okay. So we're going to kind of do this, and I'm going to take some of this out of order. But Matthew 6 begins with this, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. First of all, the idea of almsgiving, giving to the poor, is something that is very much embedded in the Jewish, in the whole of the Jewish mindset of how they engage with the community. Now, uh, in this, let's see, so I found this interesting. This comes from the Jewish New Testament commentary. Now, the Hebrew for righteousness that we're talking about here, where Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Uh, righteousness in a, in, a, in a very Hebrew and Jewish context would be, in this way, giving to charity and doing acts of mercy. Now, slightly different, slightly different. We can also see the translated uh, from the Greek, meaning righteousness, which would be, Kind deeds, alms, charitable giving, so there 's this idea of charity, but really, really, what, what I did like this uh, I, I like the idea of doing acts of mercy, acts of mercy, so this may have to do with giving money, this may have to do with giving time, but really what 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 Christ is hammering home here in, in the kingdom of god this isn't about this isn't about you patting yourself on the back because we all know we've all been around those religiously pious people that love to look beautiful in public, but you know they are damn hypocrites. You can just read it on their face, and if you're like me, it kind of just makes you sick to your stomach. But Jesus is like, you don't need this. And, and I love here, because you, you're able to see taste of this, and we see this throughout all, all, all of Scripture. Jesus likes hyperbole. Jesus likes snark. Jesus is pushing some ideas onto his people with kind of a wink, wink at the religious leaders of the time, right? What does he say? Um, He says, yes. So when you give to the needy, don't do it with trumpets. The hypocrites already do that in the synagogues and the streets. Are we really talking about trumpets? No, but they do it in a way where it's like, everyone, look at me. Look at what we've done here. This is beautiful. Uh, Anyone ever been in the church services after the youth have come home from a missions trip in a tropical area where they show you, oh, look at all we did. Look at all we did. We fixed it. We fixed it. Look at us. Yeah. Ever been part of campaigns where churches are like, oh, this Christmas, we're going to give, we're going to give money towards like canceling debt, canceling medical debt for people, which, which sounds great. But also they make sure everyone in their church knows about it. And they also usually make sure local radio stations and local newspapers know about it as well. So when we do good, when we do things that are righteous and acts of mercy, we do them because we're supposed to do them, not because they're going to give us something. Because what Jesus is, is talking about something here that, that I appreciate, uh, we've also been, as we were journeying through the Sermon of the Mount, we're also kind of bouncing in and out of uh, Addison Hodge's heart book, Taking Jesus at His Word. And there's a point that Hodges pulls out that I hadn't really thought of before. So it's it's very obvious in the scripture the idea that that doing good works for for the kingdom, doing good things for others, right? We get the idea. Do not do this so everyone else can watch you, right? You're doing this for your own selfish means. But Hodges actually also pulls out the second idea that that requiring the poor to almost for lack of better words, pimp themselves out in public to do things that feel very dehumanizing, like that they should not have to do that either, that somehow like our society is is set upon amongst our and upon uh, inequality. So there are those that have, and there's those that do not have that that Jesus is digging into here is that we are all the same. and we're going to get more to that too that, that that we are all the same that there is that the way God looks at us, there is a level playing field. We're all loved. There is all room in God's heart for us. God has room for us, and God cares for us, right? So if, if, if we are all the same, think about how horrible it is for that person that needs to go and beg, that then has to go and beg in public, and how dehumanizing that is. So part of this is, is the, what he's really trying to say here is that there is a root problem to the issue with the poor. And it comes down to the fact that we are not taking care of our own and our communities. The reason we have homeless people, the reason they're poor is because we don't take care of those, in our, those who are in our communities. You know, that We, especially living in America, especially in this time of Thanksgiving, especially in this time where we have Black Friday coming up as well, and, and that oftentimes that we've become blind to our own privilege, our own materialism, our own selfishness, in this. And, and I think, I think what Christ is giving us uh, here is He's telling us that we need to have eyes to be able to see the poor amongst us. And that if we do love others, that should break our hearts and lead us to action. So then Christ moves along from that with a similar idea. Okay, so he's gonna now talk a little bit about prayer, verse five. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door and pray to your mother who is unseen. And then your mother who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Pause there. And then, if anyone has been taught this before, you're, you know that Jesus is going to dovetail this into telling them how to pray, okay? But I'm going to skip that part and hold that till the end. Um, but we see here what Jesus is doing again, right? Okay, we're, we're setting up a whole system here. Much like uh, with giving to the poor, prayer is the same idea here, right? What are you doing if you're praying in public? What are you doing? You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for your own damn self, And God isn't fooled by it. And in the end, it really just doesn't help you at all. And it's kind of just annoying. And yeah, but we see that, right? Okay, so don't be a bunch of hypocritical fakers. All right, we're gonna get back to prayer in a minute, but I'm gonna jump down to 16. So we've talked about giving to the poor. We've talked about prayer. And now we're gonna talk about fasting. Okay, Jesus says this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces uh, their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So, we see this here. Jesus is calling out hypocrisy but he's calling out hypocrisy after he already has called them to check their hearts so he said check your hearts now he's saying check your actions how are you walking this out are you doing things that look good but do nothing making a big show out of prayer or fasting or giving to the poor doesn't help you it doesn't impress god and it really is only done to try to impress other people. Jesus is saying if you're not going to do this for the right reasons, it's pointless. You are wasting your damn time. End of story. That's it. Jesus is like peace out, I'm done here.
0: Ooh, bye-bye. No,
1: no, no. No. Um no. So think about this. Think about it in these terms. Was, what Jesus is getting at here is that us giving to the poor, giving of ourselves to the poor, of our time and of our money, uh, us, us being able to, to move into that space gives us empathy. It makes us advocates. It makes us co-people, co-humans that are doing human-to-human life together at that point. I see you, you see me, none are better, right? So it gives us a check in who we are. And giving to the poor then becomes really about loving others, okay? Prayer. What does prayer do? Prayer, well, as we'll see in a moment here, as Jesus explains prayer, it's not for the community. It's not for God. This is really something you're doing to really be able to realign yourself with what the kingdom of God is all about, okay? So we're trying to realign ourselves in community with others, uh, especially the least of those amongst us. If we can align ourselves with the least of those amongst us, eh, we're at a pretty good place to start at. If we pray only because we think God's going to do good stuff for us, that's not very helpful. No, we're we're aligning ourselves with the ethics of God's kingdom and reminding ourselves of what matters. And the lastly, e, with fasting. Okay, part of Jewish culture also meant that there was there was many different time periods where they would fast. Okay, now people also and even then and now. Fasting can be one of those things that people do to make themselves seem overly spiritually holy, right? Oh, I'm fasting now. Look at me, I'm fasting. Oh, I'm so famished from fasting. I'm so holy. Oh, oh, right? But again, what is fasting doing here? Fasting is meant to reconnect us to ourselves, to our bodies. So through all of these, we said earlier, Jesus is connecting us to our hearts that we need to be able to love others. He's connecting us to our community um, through the least of these. He's connecting us to uh, our mother in heaven through prayer, and connecting us back to our own physicalities of ourselves, our bodies, uh, through fasting here. So essentially, Jesus is giving us the recipe for righteousness all on the DL, all on the down low, all on the hush, hush, quiet, quiet. You go be righteous with your own little secretive self. That's what Jesus is saying. Go do good. Don't care about what other people think. Just do it because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you are absolutely supposed to do. That's what this whole kingdom of God is about. Okay, okay. Now we're going to circle back and talk about prayer. And, and I'll tell you, for one, this, this is a subject that, that I've, I've, I wrestle with. And I wrestle with it, a lot of it just because, I think I was just being raised around church and being around it. Prayer, like what we would have in church called corporate prayers. You know, when someone stands up in front of church and prays to God in a way that does not sound... Like normal human communication, like oh holiest of holy, oh loveliest of lovely, oh Lord of all in the universe. You know where we kind of get weird into kind of the thing, like are you conjuring something here? What's going on here in church? Just talk normals. And it always used to bother me that that it always just felt like it was it was pageantry. Now I know practice and tradition can easily become pageantry, which is what God or which is what Jesus is getting at here. With a lot of this, we're calling out hypocrisy in all of its finest ways. Religion and hypocrisy were always meant for one another. Oh, match made in hell, if it existed. So taking a couple steps back to something we've already read, uh, Jesus Jesus implores upon them, don't do all this stuff out in public, right? So what does he say? Um, Then um, he says, he calls him to do it in secret. He calls them to do it in quiet because they're merely just communicating with God in that way. And, and one of the reasons, yeah, that I, I used to always, I I struggled to prayer was not even just because of the pageantry of it, but was because of the disconnect of, uh, of it. And, and it's something that I've, I've, I think that it's, it's, I think that, that Jesus puts all of these things together for, for a very specific reason in, in, in how we're unpacking this. Because, we notice that we are, all, we are out in the community able to see the poor, and then we go back to the secret to, to speak with, with God. So, we're out in culture doing life and helping others as we do life, and then we are called to go and pray. So, there, there's, a, there's an active nature to what we're getting prayer at here. Like there's, there's an act, active nature. Do you see how like we're going out and then we're coming back? Going out and coming back. And and one of the things that <clears throat> that's changed in my mind, like growing up around evangelicalism, it always bothered me that prayer also kind of felt like Santa Claus at the mall. Like you go and sit down and make your laundry list of everything you want. And hopefully Jesus will give you a red rider BB gun for Christmas or for your prayers. But the longer I've, I've kind of walked in this, I've begun to see some of the fallacy of, of kind of like lightweight and cheap faith. I've, I've begun to see prayer as being something that is way, way, way more just practical, less spiritual, more practical. And I've even come to the place where, uh, this, is all, this is all rough around the edges, but this is stuff that I've kind of been walking out, is that, that if I'm going to pray for something, if I'm going to ask for something to happen, if I'm going to go and, and petition and bring it before God as a need, I have to also be willing to show up in the answer to that prayer. So like, if, I, if, if I am praying uh, for my neighbors that are going hungry, but I am eating fine for dinner in my house, what? No, that, that's, that, the God doesn't work like that. God works in and through us and in and through community. It's, it's about kind of how we come together, right? So if I'm going to pray for that, I also have to be willing to walk into that. So I can be praying for their needs and helping them at the same time. Then I'm investing with them. I'm getting to know deeper what the issues are. I may be able to help them in other ways or or have them talk to a friend of mine or somebody else. But what I'm saying is God is, is calling us more towards this interconnectivity. He's calling us to move into culture. He's not not withdraw from it. Now, the withdrawal part is we pull back to pray and and then Jesus lays it out like this, okay? Um. So Jesus says, do not be like the pagans, um, for your mother knows what you need before you ask her. And then he goes and says this, which is known as the Lord's Prayer. And this is how you should pray. Our mother in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we Have also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly mother will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their sins, your mother will not forgive your sins. Now again, I want to pull us back to this. I want to keep pulling us back to this idea that Jesus is speaking very practically here, not even overtly spiritually. I think, I think that we have somehow advocated our, uh, abdicated our roles in Christianity because we've overly spiritualized some of this stuff. So let's, 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 let's break this down. And, and I, found, I find this interesting that we happen to, to be upon this. And I haven't talked much about this in my personal life. I mean, I haven't talked much about my personal life on the radio, or at least this aspect to it. Um, but uh, it's been a couple of weeks, but we've uh, like I found out that my father has a fairly aggressive form of Alzheimer's. And, and it's been a really, really interesting thing to kind of be a part of and to kind of take stock in what's happening around it. So like, you know, lately it's been me helping my, my parents. Uh, we're, we're, they're moving to uh, move my father to a facility. My mom's going to be moving close to that place and moving out of town and, and just kind of going through pictures and helping people move. It, it, it really is one of those times that, that causes us to step back and really reflect on things. and, and that, is one of the supreme ideas of prayer. Uh, it's it's a time that we are called to be able to experience life, but then step back and reflect on it and reflect on how, you know, what are the things that are grieving our hearts? What are the wins? Uh, what are the losses? Where do we hurt? Where do we hope? It's, it's those kind of things that, 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 that call us back to it. And I've ta- I think I t- I've talked about my... I have an interesting relationship kind of with my father and this only makes it more interesting. <laughs> um, but growing up with my dad, he was always the quintessential like chairman of deacons at a church, always a Sunday school teacher and, and always, always, always involved in church. And I remember one of the times like, like I knew my dad as a guy that you just kind of didn't want to piss off. And <laughs> I was always kind of scared of him when I was younger. And I knew him as like teaching adults and stuff. And he would kind of be around like stuff we would do with, with when we were younger. Um, in, in the church with youth, but he was kind of the one that would always like, just keep kids in line. And, and I remember one time my dad actually had to take over and teach, teach the kids. And he really taught this, this, he taught this, the Lord's Prayer. And, and, and it's something that, that, that's, that's continued to stick with me. And my dad and I may may be on very different places, theologically speaking, but, but this is, this this practicality is something that I think that spoke through to me uh, years ago as it continues to do now. So, so walking this through, think of this, think of this as as, as a template for us to be able to con- contemplate what's going on, okay? Right? So our mother in heaven, hallowed be your name. What are we doing? We're honoring God in this. We're just saying, you're God. I'm not. and And you are great. And so if, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're acknowledging God's greatness. We're also acknowledging that we are part of helping God's kingdom unfold here on earth as it is in heaven. The on earth part, that's us. Um, simply put, give us today our daily bread. Are they asking for bread? No. It's the idea that we are praying for sustenance. And, and in the, the idea that we need necessity, that we need sustenance, it also can be a reminder to us that we should also be grateful and have gratitude when we do. So this is reminding us of, of what we need, how we are attached to God, but then God's going to move into this with, with this whole idea of how it attaches us to others, okay? So give us today our daily bread. Feed me, help me and mine continue on and, and forgive us our debts as we forgive uh, our debtors. So uh, for people that do that sin against us, for people that do stuff that we don't like, it's our call to forgive them. So we are called to forgive others, as we also ask God to forgive us for doing bad things. So that keeps us in a very subservient attitude, this idea that like, yes, I'm not better than anybody else, that I can continue to do better and lead us not into, to in, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Really what this is calling to is help us to do what we're supposed to be doing in this day. This isn't about devils or other stuff in that nature. A lot of this had to do, especially within Jewish culture, this idea of, of doing what you are called to do and not being tempted to forget what you are called to do. So yes, so God, essentially, keep our eyes open and keep us being a people that walk out the kingdom of God. And then Jesus mentions this again towards it. And if you forgive people who, when they sin against you, your heavenly mother will also forgive you. Setting up this whole idea that that we are given love, we are given grace. And with that same love and grace, we are called to go do likewise to others. This isn't overly spiritual. It's very, very practical. Connecting with God, remembering that we are trying to make this world a better place, That we need sustenance to go through the days and we are grateful when we have it. We need to learn how to forgive others. And we need to stay on that right path of continuing on doing this kind of good. That's really it. That's the bare bones of all of this. And this is all intermingled mixed amongst Jesus also saying, hypocrites, don't do like those hypocrites. Don't do like those hypocrites. Don't do like those hypocrites, right? <laughs> he did it, right? Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it like them. But here is what we're supposed to do. Something's always just stuck with me about how basic that is. I love it. And, and being able to look at prayer as, as a reason for us to pull away to reframe where we're at, to regain our perspective of who we are and what we're about helps us to then go re-engage with the community around us to continue to love others and do good and seek justice. And if prayer is what grounds us and sustains us and refocuses us to go out and do good, the act of solitude, the act of pulling away is important. And so I've also, we've also been dancing through some of this book, Making All Things New by Henry Nowen. Uh, and Nowen talks about the importance of solitude here. And I feel like it speaks very well to what we're talking about today. To bring some solitude into our lives is one of the most necessary but also most difficult disciplines. Even though we may have a deep desire for real solitude, we also experience a certain apprehension as we approach solitude, uh, approach a solitary place and time. As soon as we are alone without people to talk with, books to read, TV to watch, phone calls to make, an inner chaos opens up in us. This chaos can be so disturbing and so confusing that we can hardly wait to get busy again. Entering into a private room and shutting a door, therefore, does not mean that we immediately shut out all of our inner doubts, anxieties, fears, bad memories, unresolved conflicts, angry feelings and impulsive desires. On the contrary, when we have removed our outer distractions, we often find that our inner distractions manifest themselves to us in full force. We often use the outer distractions to shield ourselves from the interior noises. It is thus not surprising that we have a difficult time being alone. The confrontation with our inner conflicts can be too painful for us to endure. God calls us to into these quiet places so we can do that inner work, so that we can deal with the stuff that we're avoiding. Because if we are working through those with God, with, with, with our friends, with our community, with our families, if we are doing that work, that inner work, it helps us to be more stable, to be able to walk out these other practices that Christ calls us to do this. Giving to those in need, fasting, praying, it all starts back in that place or we are quiet, and we sit before God. And, and, and I'm reminded of the words of Karl Barth when he had said that the first and basic act of theological work is prayer. We can study scripture all we want, but until we sit in the quiet as just a simple human Conveying to the divine. We don't fully embrace our smallness, our uniqueness, but also at the same time, our our belovedness, our our cared forness. Um, because it's in those spaces that may be solitary and quiet that we find ourselves again. And there is a need for us to be able to return to these kind of practices because we live in an increasingly loud and noisy world. We have more distractions if we want them. We have a phone that can be like a Swiss Army knife of distractions. Pick away. We've got the answers there. But you are called to more. You are called to be a human being, not a human doing. Well, that's all I've got this week. I know I was joking about Thanksgiving, but I know the holiday season can be very difficult for everybody. So just know that you are not alone in this. If you need someone to reach out to and talk to, Stuart at snarkyfaith.com. I'd love to chat with you. But as I send you out into this wide, wild world, I send you out with the holiest amount of grace and peace and snark. Remember that Christianity is not about fake it till you make it. It's about being who you are and realizing you're already loved just the way you are that's all I got this week I will catch you guys again next week be safe over Thanksgiving catch you guys again next time I'm out of here peace